be back. I thought we were going to have an awesome, um, amazing event happen in the first service. During the middle of the prayer time, I looked down, and there's a, a huge, humongous lizard right there. And I'm like, what do I do? Like, what do I do? Like, part of me is like, let it loose. <laughs> let it loose. Like the Mississippi squirrel, just let it loose from the people, see what happens. Revival breaks out. And then I was like, well, then that might take away from the message. So I was able to get a hold of uh, Brother Frank Robinson. He came up and caught it. It was the most amazing thing ever while we were praying. And everybody else had their eyes closed. And he was, I mean, it was amazing. Um, but uh, if God has to release a thousand lizards to get us excited, then God do it. But may we not allow that to happen. Let's just get excited ourselves. So I, it is so good to be back here. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open with me to Romans chapter 2. And welcome to week 4 of our series that has us walking through the book of Romans. A series that we are calling Foundations of Faith. And last week we descended into the, the heart of depravity and saw that God has revealed His wrath upon all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And we must remember, according to Paul, that sin is running rampant in our culture. And it's not just the reason for the judgment of God. It is the judgment of God. So sin running rampant in our culture is God's judgment. Yet not only is sin brought to the surface in Romans 1, get this. So Romans 1 doesn't just bring sin to the surface. It brings our attitude towards others in their sin to the surface. So Romans 1, Paul has shown us that the pagan, godless world that we live in has rejected God and has been given over to godlessness and wickedness and immorality because of it. Yet Paul's critique of this pagan world and their, their lifestyle would have been gladly supported by the person who views themselves as being moral. So the moral Jew who was listening to Paul would be like, preach it, Paul. Tell them about themselves. Tell them how sinful they are. Tell them how bad they are. Tell them that they're going to hell. You go, Paul. But they would have assumed that they were exempt from their condemnation because in their minds they were better than the ungodly people around them. Or in their minds they didn't sin the same way, so therefore they were better. Listen, religious people will listen to Romans 1, 18 through 32. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, take time to read it. And they will think, of course God punishes the immoral, the pagan, the ungodly, the murderer, the homosexual. But I've never done any of that, so I am good. But to those who have that mindset, Romans 2 is like a bucket of cold water right over our heads. Because what Paul does is he turns to the moral, to the religious person who has been listening with a sense of accomplishment, with a sense of pride. And Paul says to those people, you do the same things. You do the exact same things. You see, when we slip away from the knowledge of our brokenness, we naturally begin to build ourselves up. And we do it by looking at the brokenness of other people. So we break other people down, and in doing so, we build ourselves up. And in a way, we're saying we're more righteous than they are. We're more godly than they are. We have our lives together, and their lives are in shambles. Yet think of it in this way. If myself and Pastor Jordan both fall into the mud, and I just so happen to climb out first, maybe because I'm a little more buoyant, and he's got a little bit more muscle mass, and I'm able, anyway, whatever the reason is, I kick him while he's down, whatever the reason, I get out before he does. Do I really have the right to look at him and say, look how dirty you are. I can't believe how dirty you are. We fell in the same mud. We fell in the same mud, and here's the deal. 
If we're not careful, we who have fallen in the mud look at people who are in the mud and we judge them. We go, look how dirty you are. You're just disgusting. You're dirty. And we forget we were in that mud. And if we're not careful, we still mess around in it. We still fall in it. Each and every day of our lives. Listen, the act of judging others produces a stern warning from God. Being quick to identify and shine the spotlight on the sins of other people does not take away our sin, doesn't take away our responsibility. And God, through Paul, is saying, I see it all. I see it all. So I want to jump in this morning to, to this warning. I want us to hear the warning that God gives to the judgmental spirit. And I want us to hear... And take heed of the just judgments, according to the word of God, that are coming. And that's the message title today, Just Judgments. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. We're going to read Romans 2, 1 through 11. And let me just say this. These are hard verses. The book of Romans is a hard book. We don't get to the really, really good news until chapter 8. Now, I'm not telling you when we're going to preach on those because I don't want you to sit home until chapter 8. So I want you to keep coming. And there's good news um, sprinkled in throughout. But this is hard stuff. So let's look at verses 1 through verse 11. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Let's pray together. Father, we pray as we come to this moment that you would help us, Lord, not to immediately focus on someone else who doesn't have it together, but realize, God, that apart from you, we are lost. Or as we just sang, Lord, our sins are many. And praise God, your mercy is more. Help us today to see ourselves for who we are. To see ourselves in our brokenness. To see ourselves in our lostness. And to see ourselves... Or saved by your grace. Speak, O oh God, for we are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. A few years ago, a magazine released a series of essays. It was Slate Magazine, a series of essays collectively called The Year of Outrage. And they described, um, in their words, everything that we get mad about and how outrage has taken over our lives. So it seems that there are as many things to get upset about as there are things to talk about. In our current cultural moment in our world, outrage has become more expected than surprising. Outrage has become more normative than 
odd. Outrage has become more encouraged than, than discouraged and more rewarded than rejected. Outrage, it kind of undergirds each day's breaking news. We're just waiting for something to happen to get upset about. And the, the picture is, it's part of the air that we breathe. Outrage has kind of become something we can't get away from. And if we're honest, we don't want to get away from it. Because we kind of like the feeling of being able to point out the wrongs of other people. We kind of like that feeling of being able to say they don't have their stuff together, but I'm sitting pretty good where I'm at. Just think about what you find outrageous. And then ask yourself, what does God find outrageous? And how often do those things actually overlap? Listen, shortly after these essays were written, journalist Emma Green published a similar piece entitled, get this, Taming Christian Rage. Yes, you heard that right. Christian rage. And according to her, she said this, that those who say they follow Christ can be just as much as part of the problem as they are part of the solution. And here's what she says, and I would agree with her. Christians can be outrageously married to political opinions, can show lack of impulse control on social media, and can hold a judgmental spirit towards others and their sins. And listen to what she says, how disturbing it is how disturbing it is when Christians don't understand the hate that lies within their own hearts. One secular journalist even said this, the trouble with born-again Christians is that they are even bigger pains the second time around. For those that don't get that, it means this, that people who claim to be born again are worse people than they were before they were born again. And I'm not saying that as a whole, that's not the true picture of Christianity, but that's how many people come across Many people claim to be born again, but all they're really good at is pointing out the sins of other people. And whether this is true of us, let me just say this. If this is true of us, Jesus stands against our efforts. If this is true of us, the Holy Spirit is grieved. If this is true of us, the Father desires more from us and the Father desires better from us. How do we know if it's true of us? Here's the deal. If any time you are confronted with your sin, you automatically think of someone else, this is talking about you. This is you, and this is us. For you see, Romans 1 reveals the unrighteousness of man. Romans 2 reveals the self-righteousness of man. So what I want to do is I want to lay before you this morning four realities, straight from these first 11 verses here of chapter 2, four realities. And uh, we'll see, we're just going where Paul takes us. The first is this, the condemning are condemned. The condemning are condemned. Listen to what Paul says in verse 1 again. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? The, The problem with the moral person is moral people tend to make themselves the standard of morality. And then they judge other people for not living up to their standard. So the moral person, they're the godly ones. They're able to judge other people for not living up to their standards. The problem is the standard of morality is God, not us. For when we compare ourselves to God, we realize that we are sinners and we need a Savior. The ultimate point here, and please don't miss this, even write this down. Here's the point. No one truly lives up to their own standards. 
No one truly lives up to their own standards. It's a fatal tendency for us to exaggerate the faults of others and minimize our own faults. To pass judgment is to believe that someone else is worthy of God's punishment while we're okay. I think of the words of John Stott who said, We work ourselves up into a state of self-righteous indignation over the disgraceful behavior of other people while the very same behavior seems not nearly so serious when it's ours rather than theirs. Listen, we can see the faults in other people more readily than we can see the faults in ourselves. Or as I've said it before, we all have the gift of recognizing a thousand sins in other people while never seeing one in ourselves. And I don't know if it's a gift, probably it's a curse. But to go further, listen, we have this tendency to point the finger at others, to find someone that we consider worse than we are, and we ask God to concentrate on them and to leave us alone. When the Holy Spirit begins to convict us, we go, well, God, convict them. They're, they're way worse than I am. We, we try to take God off, of, off the hunt. We try to take the dog off the hunt by giving him something else to hunt. But here's the deal. If we can judge sin in other people, so if you and I can judge sin in other people, and let me just say, we do. So if we can judge sin in others, then it gives evidence that we know that there's a standard. So if we can judge sin in other people, it gives evidence that we know that there's a standard. And condemning others while excusing ourselves is a way for us to hang on to self-righteousness and sin. But here's the deal. Here's what Paul is saying. In other words, on the final day of God's judgment, when I stand before God, the counsel of the prosecution against me will be me. That's what Paul is saying. When I stand before God, the counsel of the prosecution will be me. Now, what does that mean? Francis Schaeffer gives this amazing illustration. I just want to share it with you. He says this, or he writes this, Let us suppose that every time a baby is born, an invisible tape recorder is hung around its neck. Now, for the younger audience, that would be like an MP3 player or something else that I don't know about. Um, MP4, MP8, MP12, something that I don't know about, but I get tape recorder. So an invisible tape recorder, a recorder around the neck. And he says this, As the baby grows up, the tape recorder faithfully records all the moral judgments that that person makes against other people. She's so fake, he can't be trusted. Only a fool would do something like that. I'd die before I say something like that. He doesn't deserve a second chance. Think of all the thousands of moral judgments that we make every year. Some of us maybe even every day. Don't know. But he says this, the invisible recorder catches them all. Finally, the day comes when that person stands before the Almighty. They protest that they don't deserve to be there, that God has nothing on them, that they've been a good person. From nowhere, a finger appears and presses a button on the tape recorder around the person's neck. Out comes the sound of all the moral judgments that the person has made over their life. Then he says this, when it's over, God says, now I will judge you by the same standards you have used to judge others who could survive that judgment but here's the point brothers and sisters don't miss this if we can't escape our own judgment how can we escape the judgment of God if we can't escape even our own judgments against other people how can we escape the judgment of God we don't become righteous by pointing out the unrighteousness of other people let me just say this very clearly this morning. If we see other people fall in the mud, fall in the sin, our first reaction, instead of judging them, should be, if not for the grace of God, that would be me. 
If not for God's grace, that would be me. If not for what God has done in my life, that would be me right now in the mud, drowning in it. You see, brothers and sisters, sin blinds us to our own faults. Sin makes us or gives us amnesia when it comes to our past mistakes. Sin allows us to rationalize our sins or even to rename them to make them sound better. We might be righteous in our own eyes, but doesn't mean we are in God's eyes. Listen, I, I find it very easy to cover up my sins, and I find it a whole lot easier to focus on other people's. But the reality, according to what Paul is saying, is the condemning will be condemned. And if that's true of all of us, then what's our hope? Glad you asked, because that leads us to the second reality, which is this. Don't miss, number two, the kindness of the king. Don't miss the kindness of the king. In the words of Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, listen to what he said in this message. Oh, sinner, can you give any reason why since you have risen from your bed this morning, God has not struck you dead? What an encouraging word that is. Can you give any reason, sinner, why God hasn't struck you dead? And then he says this, the hard-hearted man is spurning God's kindness, forbearance, and patience. Instead of storing up treasures in heaven, they are storing up wrath from God. The most loving thing that God can do for us is to bring us to repentance. If God sets his heart to save us, his revelation might harm us. It might even make us angry, but it saves. It saves. It's his kindness. Listen, we can look down in judgment upon those that we think we're better than. Let me just go ahead and make sure you're still awake. How many of, how many of you have ever looked down in judgment upon someone you thought you were better than? Anybody? Others of you lying in church is also a sin, so that might be another opportunity. Listen, here's the point. We look down on others, yet God, who is higher than us all, looks down upon us, and he shows kindness. He looks kindly and patiently upon us. His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Listen to verses 4 and 5 again. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself? Listen, we have a tendency to view God's patience and kindness over our sin as if we're okay with God and God's okay with us. But the Apostle Paul wants us to realize that God is patient with us so that we'll repent. God is giving us time so that we'll turn from our sin. Never conclude just because you don't get immediate punishment that God's okay with your sin. No, God is giving you an opportunity to repent of your sin. God's kindness, his patience is meant to lead us to repentance. And let me say this. The kindness of God doesn't just call us to repentance. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. Understand the difference. The gospel calls us to repentance. The gospel is the call to repent for the kingdom of God is near. It's here. But the kindness of God is the hand of God upon us saying, follow me. Come to me. Come to where I am. You who are weak and heavy laden and I will give you rest. That's what the kindness of God does in our lives. An important part of the teaching of, of Romans is that God is a merciful God. Even in judgment, God shows mercy. 
Listen, the day of wrath will definitely come will God, when God will pour out his wrath upon all unbelievers. But until then, there is still time for you to repent. If you haven't repented and you're breathing, God has given you breath to repent. He's given you time to turn to him. Yet God's patience doesn't mean that God is pleased. God's patience means that he's willing to give us time to turn to him. Let me just say this, and if you take notes, write this down. Ultimately, it is not the badness of man that leads to repentance. It is the goodness of God. It is not the badness of man that leads to repentance. It's the goodness of God. How do I know that? Even the prodigal son came to repentance in the pig pen, not by thinking about the badness of his father, but by thinking about the goodness of his father. In the pig pen, he didn't think, man, my father is going to be mad at me. My father's probably ticked off. I need to go back. No, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here in hunger. Listen, there, there are many who see no need for repentance and have no realization that God is kindly holding back his judgment upon them so to give them time to repent. It's been said that Romans 1 and 2 are setting before us the same two people that Jesus does in the parable of the two sons in Luke 15. Now, we call it the parable of the prodigal son, but it's really the parable of both sons. For Jesus gives us a picture of a father who had two sons, not just one. Now, there was the younger brother who squanders all that the father gives him. He squanders it on immorality. He squanders it on prostitutes. He's immoral. He's materialistic. He's disobedient to the father. He's everything that we read about in Romans 1, 18 through 32. Then we have the second son who's obedient. He's compliant. He's moral. He's a whole lot better than his brother is. Yet the point of the parable, get this, is that they're both lost. That's the point of the parable. The point of the parable is not that one of them saved and one of them lost. The point of the parable is that both of them are lost, alienated from the Father, and both need salvation. And so what Paul does here is he's saying exactly the same thing. Romans 1 is about the younger brother. And Paul says, yes, the younger brother has run towards sin, is doing everything possible to escape God, to pretend like God doesn't exist, to act like they're the God of their own lives. And the older brother's going, get him. And then Paul turns to the older brother in Romans 2 and he says, you are trying so hard to be good and you think that God is pleased with you because of what you do and because you're comparing yourself to others and you're lost as well. You're just as lost. Let me say it again. The most loving thing that God can do for any person is to bring them to repentance. It's the most loving thing. That doesn't mean it won't hurt. Let me tell you what it does. It kills, it slays our pride. It kills our pride. It's the most loving thing that God does, the kindness of the king, which leads us to reality number three. The reality number three is the reward of the righteous. So the reality number three, the reward of the righteous. In verses six and seven, Paul writes, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immorality, he will give eternal life. Then verse 10 says, there will be glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. So when we stand before God on the last day for his judgment and for his verdict, what is the general test by which we will be judged? 
Now, most of us say immediately the general test by which we will be judged is, am I saved? Am I a Christian? Have I trusted Jesus as my Savior and Lord? But here's the deal. That's not what Paul says. Paul says that the general test of how we'll be judged is not Jesus. The general test, according to Paul, is what did you do in this life? What have you done? What were your works? Now, that sounds crazy. Now, here's the deal. A couple weeks ago, I talked about Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a monk. He was a, um, an amazing man who sought the Lord. He understood his own sin. And at nights, he would wrestle and he would say, my sin, my sin, my sin. I can't get rid of my sin. He would try to do as many good things as he could possibly do, and yet his sin wouldn't go away. Finally, he was reading through Romans 1, 16 and 17, and he read about the righteousness of God that's revealed from faith. And it says, the righteous, or the, righteous or the just shall live by faith. And Martin Luther says, immediately, the scales fell off my eyes, and I understood that I am saved through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And we, we praise God for that. But do we say, well, Martin, you probably should have kept reading. And if you, if you would have got to chapter 2, you would have realized you're going to have to have works. What, what's the deal here? You, you say, am I going to be judged by my works in order to determine if I get into heaven? And pay very close attention here. In one sense, the answer is no. So in one sense, the answer is no, for we are saved by grace through faith, and that is not our own doing. It is a gift of God. We understand, as we have talked about, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. He that believes on the Son, according to Jesus, has everlasting life. But in another sense, Paul is saying, yes, because our lives are the best illustration of what we believe. Listen, if I want to know what you believe, the best bet that I have is not to listen to your words, but to watch your life. And let me just give you a, a little, little clue here. That's what the world's doing. The world isn't listening to us, probably for good reason. The world's watching us. And what they're seeing is enough to go, why do I want that? Or why do I need that? They, they, they want what I have more than I should want what they have. And the, the picture is we have to understand this reality. Listen, let me put it this way. A man's destiny on judgment day will depend not on whether he has known God's will, but has he done God's will? Has he done God's will? Paul is saying that works matter not as the basis of salvation, but as the evidence of our salvation. Here's another way to put it in case maybe some of you are confused right now. Think about an apple tree. The apple on an apple tree proves that that tree has life. But the apples don't provide the life. So think about this. The apples are evidence that that tree is alive and doing well. But it's the roots that are the ones that are pulling the nourishment to keeping the tree alive and to making sure that there are apples there. In the same way, listen, our works, the works that we do don't bring life. They're, they're a picture of the fact that we have life. That we have the Holy Spirit within us producing fruit, producing something. Again, here's the reality, brothers and sisters. If you have met Jesus, you will be changed. If you have met Jesus, that doesn't mean you won't struggle with sin. It doesn't mean that sin won't try to grab a hold of you. But the picture is we will understand what he has done for us. And when we're saved, we understand like we sang earlier, his mercy is more. 
My sins are many as mercy is more. This is the reward of righteousness. But let me read this again. Just understand, it says, the person who seeks glory, honor, and immortality will be given eternal life. None of those things will ever be given to us on our own. They will only be given to us because of Christ. We will never have honor in ourselves, glory in ourselves, or immortality in ourselves. Only through Christ are we giving, given those things. The reward of the righteous, which leads us to the last reality. And we're going to end with the bad news because Paul ends with the bad news. The damnation of the disobedient. Paul ends with the bad news. So here's where we are. Verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. Verse 8, for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Does this picture bother you? Does that, what I just read, does that bother you? Holy, righteous wrath accumulating moment by moment, day by day, year after year, filling up to the point of bursting forth in fury on those who will not turn to God. The picture that Paul is painting here is like water pulling up behind a dam. People are accumulating a debt of wrath that's pouring up and it's pouring up and it's getting higher and higher, pressing up against this dam. And one day, if they do not turn to God through Jesus, that dam will break. And all of that wrath will rush upon them and will wash them away. And when it comes to those who will be saved versus those who won't be saved, Paul ends this section this way. Verse 11, for God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. What that means, brothers and sisters, God does not and will not play favorites. God doesn't close his eyes and think of a certain ethnicity or a certain race or a certain gender or a certain economic standard and say, I want those. No, God sent his son for all. For any who will come to him, any who will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the picture of the word of God. But I, wanna, I want you to hear these words. I want you to hear the words of a different apostle, the apostle Peter. In 2 Peter 3.9, the apostle Peter writes these words. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance even now god is showing repentance or excuse me god is showing kindness or patience with all of us and how do i know that because you're here i know that because you're here you're here because god has kindness upon you you're here because god is calling you out of sin into life out of darkness into life it's what god is doing in this moment i want to end today by showing you the words of rc sproul and I pray that you would understand, take these words in, because these words are personal words and they're your words. He says, no matter how many groups we are members of, there is one thing we must keep before our eyes constantly. In the final analysis, when we stand before God Almighty, we stand alone. Let me say that again. When we stand before God Almighty, we stand alone. He goes on, I cannot appeal to the righteous, righteousness of my father or to the righteousness of my mother or to the righteousness of my sister. There's so many jokes there, but for the seriousness, I can't even say that right now, Kelly, sorry. Or the greatness of the church by which I belong. But he says this, I have to answer for my life by myself before the throne of God. Brothers and sisters, we need a judge who is righteous. His name is Jesus Christ. 
We need a judge who is impartial. His name is Jesus Christ. We need a judge who is all-knowing. His name is Jesus Christ. We need a judge who is perfectly righteous all the way through. His name is Jesus Christ. We need a judge who is willing to be our victim, willing to pay the debt that we cannot pay, and his name is Jesus Christ. We need a judge who gives grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, and his name is Jesus Christ. And we need a judge who is able to bring us with him to heaven and his name is Jesus Christ do you know him do you know him today do not turn him away don't turn him away if you are in this room today or if you're listening online today and you do not know Jesus and the Holy Spirit is working in your heart and your life in this moment don't resist it don't fight against what God wants to do Surrender to it. Submit to it. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Turn away from your sin and from all the things that the world promises that will blow up in our face and turn to Jesus Christ. But let me also say this to the child of God in this room. Sometimes if we're not careful, we begin to act like we're saved and therefore we don't need any forgiveness. Jesus looked at Peter and said, let me wash your feet. Meaning, in the course of our everyday journey, our feet get dirty. We fall into sin. We stumble and fall, don't we? And yet sometimes we act like, I'm not the one that needs forgiveness. They do. And yet God's word says, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He wasn't talking to the unbeliever there. He was talking to the believer. We need to understand our sin and understand this. Repentance isn't just for the lost. Repentance is for the saved. It's for us. It's for us. His kindness leads us to repentance. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to ask musicians to come forward and enter to a time of consecration, invitation. Just focus on who Christ is and who we are. Father, we come before you, and Lord, we're asking that you just end this time in a way that brings glory to you. I pray that if any who are here today or any who are listening online today don't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. Oh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would not give them a moment's peace until they come to trust and know that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. That they would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Lord, bring salvation, bring repentance today. Lord, not just to the unsaved, bring repentance today to those who are saved. Especially, God, those of us, Lord, who have become so good at judging the sins of other people. And we've convinced ourselves that we are so much better than we are. All the while neglecting that our sins are many. Our sins are many. Our sins are many. But praise God, your mercy is more. Bring us back, God. Bring us back to the reality that we have not become immune to sin that we have not become to a place or we have not come to a status by which we are perfect or we still fall in that mud and we still need your cleansing. Help us also as in the standpoint of our cleansing to understand that there are others, God, who, who need cleansing. 
So when we look at the lost and dying world, we won't look at them and say, oh, how bad they are. We will say, I was thirsty and I found drink and they can find drink too. There's enough for them in Jesus. Help us to see the world in that way. In Jesus' name we pray.